Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Josh Jelinski, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Great to be with you, Robert. <laughs> so you and I met on a beach in Kauai. Um, I think you were talking to my girlfriend, and she, I don't know how you guys struck up a conversation, but then you were there with your large family, and then we all became friends, and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and it wasn't long before you and I started talking about some deeper topics, kind of philosophical topics, theological topics, um, and we've kept in touch since. Uh, you are better known as, perhaps, the financial quarterback. Maybe you could just tell the audience a little bit about your radio show, what you do. Yeah, in our radio show, we cover topics from Bitcoin to taxes to lowering risk to maximizing wealth. I own an SEC registered RIA, wealth quarterback. I've been doing that for, I don't know, a number of years, 16, 16 years or so. And we're based in Tom's River, New Jersey, help people all around the world uh, maximize their wealth. But we, we kind of connected on the Bitcoin theology philosophy realm. yes exactly because we're frustrated philosophy students or something yeah um yeah, there's a number of ways to approach this but one thank you for the introduction for the audience with that said though that's really not what we're talking about today we're talking about the the philosophy and theological aspects um i guess one way to approach this is it's something jordan peterson's been talking a lot about recently that there is this human impetus to attach what he calls, I think, the religious impulse to things. So even if you take, say, Christianity out of the equation for a society, they end up attaching that same deification to something, right? Whether it's, I think you said earlier, like the religion of Fauci was a recent one. People start to worship, you know, individuals or or institutions like government itself, and things really seem to go awry when that happens. When you start r confusing something that's uh, transcendent for something that's manifest in the material world, it leads to really bad outcomes, historically at least. Um, 
So I definitely like to explore that. And one of the things you recommended to me was this reading we did on sphere sovereignty. Um, so maybe we could just open with that. Like, let's, what, what is sphere sovereignty? How do we describe that? Um, and what did, I guess this was the, the Calvinist that it establishes? Yes, Abraham Kuyper, yeah. former prime minister of the Netherlands. So when you think of the Netherlands, you think of like pot smoking and sort of a loose uh, morality and kind of a libertarian kind of impulse to do kind of what you want to do. But that actually started 100 years ago. They were in essence like a very Christian nation. Their prime minister uh, was a guy named Abraham Kuyper, who was a minister uh, and head of, I believe, the Free Church of the Netherlands. I'm not a Kuyperian scholar, but there are actual like PhD programs where you could study Kuyper yeah. and Kuyperianism. And that's a branch of sort of the Dutch Calvinist strand, which is very distinct from American evangelicalism. Mm. And I think where we in the U.S. struggle, and really where, where Canada struggles with the recent Freedom Convoy, uh, thing is we don't have a concept of God apart from, let's say, traditional religion. Mm. So then the state can fill the vacuum. They can fill the vacuum with money. With money. Mm. This is the what is money show. Mm. So, I mean, how God and money relate. And the whole mm. concept of sphere sovereignty is you have different institutions ordained by God, whether you're Jewish, Muslim, atheist, you basically have different spheres of your life that you like to keep separate. So your family, you really don't want your pastor telling you how to raise your children. Mm -hmm. You know, so family is a distinct sphere that I think everyone would agree upon. Mm. Church, there might be people who are agnostic or atheistic, but in a way they still have their own morality. So when I say church, I mean, basically a religious viewpoint on the world. You could believe in God. And even people I know who are atheistic or agnostic have a very strong moral core. In fact, more so sometimes because they're trying to prove that they can have a morality without God. So when I say sort of church, I really mean they're, they're worshiping impulse. Right. We all have that worshiping impulse. And then the third would be the state. Now there are many other spheres, work, environment and i would argue and kuiper would argue that the transcendent i mean he would say christ for, as the covenantal god meaning not just a god like a deist god but a god that is personal and real as manifest in a person christ sort of that is the trans transcendent element and if you don't have a personal god what you will end up having is the state will fill that vacuum. Mm. So he was arguing in a lecture, I wanna say 1898, I'm doing this from memory, so I could, my, my dates could be off, it's about a 30 page lecture, pretty easy reading. And we, we shared this one article that was a very good synopsis of it by a guy who was Canadian. Mm. And he was decrying sort of the loss of liberties in Canada in 2004. And he, he could see the handwriting. And then 2018 is that article where we read where he said, hey, you know what? Canada's long gone. And now what, now what are we seeing Canada to do? The government is then seizing private bank accounts of mm -hmm. people whose speech that they disagree with. Right. And jailing them. 
Yeah, it's gotten really out of hand. Um, I guess to unpack a little bit of that, what we mean when we say religious impulse, um, you know, Peterson has given this example before of the nihilist at a concert, like people that believe nothing, right? They were just in this vast, empty universe, um, meaningless little in, uh, civilization on the edge of a dust mode at the edge of space, like everything's pointless. Yet they'll go to a concert and you just see them fully engaged with the music, right? Like that is meaningful to them, even though they have this worldview that's totally, I guess, purely objectified or, or nihilistic. So it's, when we say religious impulse, we're talking about where humans derive meaning, right? To even be alive, you have to have, I've, I've given this example before, to even move through the world, to walk from one side of the room to the other, I, it implies that I value being over there more than I value being here. So the question is, with this religious impulse, like, how do I structure and prioritize my values? Um, and it seems like, and I'm not saying this emphatically, but it seems to me, at least, that when I look at some studies of history and, and instances in the world today where God, G-O-D, has been taken out of the equation, as you say, G-O-V fills that vacuum. And then all of a sudden we have human beings trying to derive their meaning from life from the state. And then the state, you know, if you parse that apart, what is that? That's a business model premise on coercion, compulsion, violence. And when people start deriving meaning from that, rather than something transcendent, um, things really come off the track, so to speak. And when we were talking about this on the beach, you know, you trace this back to this I guess it's a misinterpretation of sorts that we could successfully sphere these different groups and say the state has its own sovereignty over here, the church has its own sovereignty over here, the family has its own sovereignty up here. But it seems like that that may have been mistaken, right? That they're they're all subordinate to one broader sphere of sovereignty, which we put under something like Christ, right? That yep. is and you, you don't need to believe in the metaphysical claims of Christ. It's more about what he represents, I think. This um, loving thy neighbor, telling truth to power, loving thy God. Um, and again, I could be, and, and for God here, again, this is such a trigger word for people. You could just say that's your highest value and your hierarchies of value. Whatever you're prioritizing most, that is your God, effectively. Could be money, could be the state, could be an individual. Um, so in, that's just some framing, I guess I wanted to put to this conversation. Yeah, no, there's a big misinterpretation on the whole concept of God, but I want to talk about the, the nihilist kind of impulse, because mm. I'm thinking of family members who shall remain nameless, mm. but you know, people, you know, who kind of go to concerts and they truly, that's, that's a great point. They're truly worshiping. I mean, if you were to, were to put like a charismatic Bible-believing church in the South and contrast that with the worship system, with the worship of going to a concert, there are similar, I mean, there's differences, you know, maybe there's less drug use, maybe there's <laughs> less cursing, but there is a certain worshiping impulse. Why? The nihilist, generally, when you talk to nihilists, it's not that they don't believe in God, they don't believe in 
someone's conception of God mm -hmm. or something very bad happened. They lost a brother, they lost a sister, they lost a parent, they lost a child, and they really can't cope with uh, the what they view as God kind of regurgitated to them by people who don't really think deeply about God and philosophy and, and these things. So they kind of reject sort of a traditional notion of God, but I would say they, they do worship then. And now they don't, I believe they're nihilistic because they don't believe in a personal God. Mm -hmm. They believe God sort of like Aladdin or the, mm -hmm. like the genie kind of doing whatever they want to do. But I would say that has profound implications on money, the cult of state, the misinterpretive scripture. And I would trace it, and I don't want to, you know, mock anyone's, you know, favorite preacher, but if you think about Billy Graham, he's changed more lives than you or I probably could ever. But his faith was a very kind of, Jesus is fire insurance. Religion is so you don't go to hell. Mm. And although that, you know, that's valid according to my Christian beliefs, it's so much more than that. It's a mm. view of state. It's a view of money. It's a view, even if you don't believe in heaven and hell, mm. because there is profoundities that you can't explain the transcendent and, and the, the, uh, the Christ figure, if you will, is the merger of like deism and a personal God that God is both imminent near kind of like the Eastern concept of God mm. and God is transcendent sort of the mm. Western concept of God. So the nihilistic, and then, then we talked about the Christian misinterpretation of passages. And I think it stems from sort of this, what some scholars have called revivalism. You know, you go to a meeting, you raise your hand, you walk the aisle, your life will be changed. And you can like write a verse or write a date. I got saved at this date. And, and I believe in that. I believe in personal salvation, individual salvation. Into, I, I, I gain enormous hope under trial. We, we lost a daughter. I, I understand people who, who can't believe in God because of horrible tragedies in their lives. I lost my parents. I lost so many people, nephews, um, my nephew. Uh, and I think a lot of people's disbelief is generally due to they don't know how to cope with something very bad that happened. That's my own personal theory, but, but not talking about that. I'm very concerned that the West, we're sort of a post-Christian era now. Mm -hmm. People really don't believe in anything. So there's, it, it reminds me of the biblical times where there was the cult of Caesar. I mean, for two years, we lived under the cult of Fauci. Whatever Fauci said was like, hail Fauci, Lord of all. Right. And, you know, I respect he's, he's doing the best he can, you know, with limited knowledge. But think about this. We stopped our world for two years based on sort of a scientific tyranny, really because people don't believe in a Judeo-Christian God, I would say. Why, why would I say that? If you think about it, People don't want to die. Mm -hmm. Why don't they? If, if there is no God, why would you care about dying? You're just, you're just uh, matter, mm -hmm. right? But people don't want to get COVID because they don't want to die. Well, why do they fear death? If we're just going to be particles in the sand, mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing to fear. We're just going to decompose. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could say, well, hey, this is my last shot. I would rather stretch it to 80 years. And that's probably where we are in the current state. So who do they believe? Well, they, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in... 
anything. Allah, so, well, Fauci seems like a nice guy. He's worked under Republicans and Democrats. We don't really want to believe in Trump, but Trump appointed Fauci, you know, Biden appointed Fauci. And so we surrendered our own individual sovereignty because we didn't have a view of heaven now, meaning the, the pandemic, I was fearful of it minorly for about a month or two. But after a while, I was sort of like, well, if it is God's will that I be gone, there's really nothing I can stop it. That's my own personal belief. So I'm going to have fun because I might have like two years left. Mm -hmm. And I've lost people early in my life and, and young. So I didn't want my whole life to be characters. Now, were we cautious? Did we do the things we, you know, did I wash my hands and sure I, I was trying, but that was based on the principle of loving thy neighbor. Right. It wasn't based on, Oh, I'm fearful of mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. So I think when there is no religion or no transcendent God mm -hmm. and no personal God, I would add the state fills that vacuum. And then we have this concept of seer sovereignty, which is Kuiper very distinct from what I would say, Billy Graham and revivalism and nothing. I mean, do yourself a favor. And if you've never watched Billy Graham uh, videos of his sermons, watch him. He was prolific. He was amazing. Probably one of the best speakers of the last 100 years. Brings you to tears. But it was a simple gospel. There was no view of money. The Bible has a view of money. You know, just weights and measures. That's a big thing in the Bitcoin world that... Bitcoin's an answer for, mm -hmm. but we don't, you know, when you go to church, they don't talk about a biblical view of money. I mean, some do, mm -hmm. but not a lot. Or so just weights and measures. So this Billy Graham kind of reductionist where, where religion is only about personal salvation mm -hmm. and there is no view of statism led to a misinterpretation of two verses, two key verses, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's, mm -hmm. which is in Mark and the Gospels. And then the other passage that I think gets wildly misquoted is Romans 13, which is obey the governing authorities. Mm -hmm. So those are two proof texts used by people on the right and the left, kind of the left in Canada, the right, sometimes in the U.S., to say, you know what, whoever is in charge, whether it be Trump, Obama, Biden, I'm not, I'm not really trying to get partisan here. You got to respect them because kind of God put them where they are. Almost a divine right monarchy mm -hmm. view. And that's pervasive in the church. And not that Billy Graham wanted that, but he was a purveyor of it. Why? You know, he preached to Nixon. He preached to Clinton. He didn't really talk about the deep things that other people maybe who aren't drawn to a personal individual salvation, of which I personally am. I love my personal walk with God, mm. my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But for some people, but I also love a view of money, mm. a view of state. Because if you don't have the right view of money, you're going to idolize money. The Bible's very clear. Mm. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And even, it's very funny, when I talk to people who are atheistic, but who are very moral, they always go to money issues or they go to, 
you know, well, what about the kids in the cages or all these horrible things? You know, mm -hmm. they do have a certain sense of morality. What about Wall Street, how they screwed people in 08 or, or, or today big tech sort of is, is the new villain. But it's generally we need a religious view of money, a moral view of money, a love your neighbor type of money, mm -hmm. which is where Bitcoin comes in. And, and that's, you know, your specialty on the What is Money podcast. But I think money has a theology and theology has a money. And when you look at things deeply, I think the last hundred years of Christendom and really American Christianity, I mean, if you talk to people in other parts of the world, they don't really have this. Mm. We have this kind of capitalized, uh, weird kind of quasi, uh, almost transactional faith where, where faith is, is merely a transaction to go to heaven. And there's no, and, and that's important for me, but there, there's much more to it. And I would say it's the two verses, God and Caesar render to things, the things that are Caesar and render to God, the things that are God's and a misinterpretation of Romans 13. And by context, all of Romans, mm -hmm. which some say is the greatest letter ever written, which uh, people don't even read it, but Paul's letter to the Romans talks about race relations, talks about difference between Jews and Gentiles, talks about how uh, to deal with bad times. I mean, just as personal salvation, corporate salvation, individualism, collectivism, uh, the, you know, loving your neighbor. There's so much that Romans talks about, but we just want to read um, sort of the Romans road verses, mm -hmm. which is how one gets to heaven how you can have individual salvation, which is important. You know, Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I believe in those verses. And those are deeply personal, probably the most meaningful verses in my life. But then we have probably the, the greatest, kind of the climax of Romans is Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good, to those who love him. And that's really talking about cosmic renewal. Mm. That's talking about not just things are going to work out in Josh's life or Robert's life, but that they will work out cosmically mm. or even like the pet that you love that died will sometime somehow have this cosmic renewal. Mm. And People read Romans 8, 28, and they say basically, oh, that's how you get through hard times, which is true. That brings enormous comfort. But the bigger point is Jesus is the Caesar of the cosmos mm. and not merely the Caesar of the Roman Empire. And that's why Paul got killed. If he wasn't a threat to Rome, they wouldn't have killed him. Right. Wow. Well, a lot there. Um you know, I would just say that one of the things I think is especially confounding on these topics is when you get into the realm of divinity, it's like words almost always fall short. Um, and there's this, there's, there's God, right? Which is we're using a word to represent something that is inherently beyond words, right? It's ineffable. And then there's separate from that, the idea of God, Carl Jung often makes this distinction. Um, and I find that to be interesting. It's like, you know, we're all the, you know, Terrence McKenna had this old phrase that all language is a lie, right? So every word that we say, it's intended to 
convey some meaning of some kind, but it's never the thing itself, right? It's, it's or the, as the Taoists say, don't confuse the moon for the finger that's pointing at the moon, right? So we're, the way I, I describe this is we're using useful fictions to try and point towards deeper truth. And there's something really spectacularly important in the Bible itself, right? It is, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not, it's the foundational text to Western civilization. Like if you live in Western civilization, if you own property, if you believe in, um, you know, basically life, liberty, property, any basic morality that we take for granted in the West, that's, it's based on a Judeo-Christian substructure. Like you can't argue with that. It is what it is. Um, but there is this, and I guess I didn't know as much about Billy Graham, but it sounds like in his, I think you call it revivalism, he's tapping into this kind of like Paschal wager view of God where it's like you should just believe in God because if you're right great and if you're wrong then it doesn't matter but if you don't believe in God and you're wrong then you're gonna have eternal damnation or whatever this thing is um, but if you don't believe in God and you're right then you're not you're not any better off basically so um, and on the, the cultish thing, the other thing that came to mind here was the cult of Greenspan. Mm. You know, when he was running the Federal Reserve, there was a long period of time where they called him the Oracle. And he could just basically do no wrong. And it just seems like there's a real danger there. Like if we don't understand and respect the limitation of all humans and understand that, you know, there's, there's no final solution, there's no final leader, there's no final symbol, no final answer that there's always this process of exchange and renewal and discovery that takes us forward. Um, that we, you know, that there's another way to say this. Maybe there's the reality is constantly changing. All we can do is try to remap it right to, to chart our way. And it is that remapping process. That is the, the way there's not like there's some destination. It's a, it's an eternal journey kind of thing. Um, and this is interesting too. There's an, the etymology actually of the word God. Uh, you know, languages are deeply interconnected, but you can trace a lot of them back to Proto Indo European. And I did this in a separate series, but if you trace the word God back, you get to the word, the Proto Indo European root word Gut, G H U T. And the word has four meanings. One of the meanings is actually to barter or exchange. So this idea that God is related to, again, using words to describe something that's beyond words, this constant action of renewal or exchange, like that's what we have to strive for, not some final answer, some final solution. Um, and I wonder how Christ fits into this because well, I think Jesus, I mean, personally, I think Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But I think from a philosophical standpoint, what you just said about Gut, I, I thought about Romans, since we're talking about Romans a little mm -hmm. bit today. Romans 1, 16, which is like a key text in the Bible. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. For in it, and my memory may not be 100%. <laughs> for in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. So what does this word righteousness mean? Do you mean like upright, uptight, self-righteous people? No. The word righteousness is actually very similar to the word gut mm. in that it, it is equity. It's like lady mm. liberty. Now, it's very interesting. How do you define worship? How do you find equity? What's interesting here is even if you don't believe in God, all of the words we hear are deeply religious. If you think about, you just mentioned Greenspan, the all-powerful Fed. We, mm. we even today, why? Yes. Because we idolize money. All right. We don't have money in the proper role, but I would say good, and pr I know righteousness, I've studied righteousness a lot, and that verse, and that verse is a subject, I mean, there are textbooks on what does the righteousness of God mean? Mm. Does it mean equity? Does it mean justice? Does it mean just weights and measures? Mm. And the answer is it means all of it. That's why, that's why they picked that word. Right. And uh, it's, its absence is injustice. And what we hear today about like social justice, it's actually, they, they even take that mm -hmm. word kind of to be a proof text for being a social justice warrior. But if you really understand the word, it's much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. It is a view of money is included. Just weights and measures, all of that stuff. Because if you think about it, we in the U.S. get this, I think, more than most because everything's transactional. I don't know about you, but I feel like everything in this fiat world that we live in, everybody's always trying to screw us. Yes. Like, yeah. I'm always... A, scammy. I'm on the phone with, you know, yeah. a cell phone carrier. Right. Just people don't deal fairly. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of evil even in the human heart, right? Mm -hmm. It was that impulse of self-preservation and self-interest where... The gospel, so we, we think of, um, when, when we hear gospel, we, we think of something totally different than that. You know what I mean? I mean, we, we think of something very limiting, maybe personal. This is a, a view of cosmic renewal, a view of in, individual salvation, yes, but righteousness is a very big word. The other thing that Romans 1, and we'll get to Romans 13 eventually, but Romans 1, you could spend all day on Romans 1. Gospel is a... When Paul picked the word gospel, so we think you're from Tennessee, right? Mm, yeah. I'm not from Tennessee. I'm not from the Bible Belt. I'm from the Northeast where people give you the finger before they get into church or something <laughs> like that. And they're a little bit more, you know, genuine, I would say, than all the nice people I meet down South. No offense if you're, if you're Southern. <laughs> you know what I mean? There, there's this cultural Christianity in the South, or yeah. there was um, maybe less so today, but... Um, the gospel. So when you hear gospel, you think of, oh, you know, the gospel preacher. That is not what that word meant to the first century hearer of that word. Gospel meant uh, euangelion. I don't mm. know if you've ever heard of this word, mm. but euangelion is the Greek for gospel. And they borrowed it. They basically, Paul stole it from Caesar imperial cultic language. So when Caesar conquered your territory, say it was ancient Palestine or wherever, he would let you keep your God. Mm. But you had to bow or burn incense to the cult of Caesar, the cult of state. And by the time Paul was writing this, the cult of state kind of developed massively beyond Augustus. Uh, Nero was probably the, the emperor at the time. 
and he believed he was imbued with special powers from on high. And that sounds familiar. I mean, every, every leader sort of appeals to that, to gain obedience from its citizens, but they took it to another level. And when they would go into a town and Caesar conquered, they would want peace. So the good news was that Caesar, he's not going to kill you. In fact, you get to keep your God, but that God, and this kind of goes back to seer sovereignty, gets to play along the same size of this as the state God. Mm. And that's where I think American evangelicalism and American Christianity as a whole, you can have Jesus and you can have money. You can have the Fed. You can have your business. So in a way, the sphere sovereignty of the last 100 years is not the Kyperian sphere sovereignty where the transcendent, and I, and I mean this even if you don't believe in the Christian God, your transcendent worldview, like Jordan Peterson is, is a big purveyor of that, your view of the transcendent will govern your whether you're a statist or not. Right. Yeah, no, the idea of your metaphysics influencing all the other aspects of your worldview, right? Because if you, if you really think everything is, I guess, the nihilistic viewpoint, then you're going to behave that way, right? It's going to shine through in your behavior. Um, I want to double click on something you said there, this idea of righteousness being related to the word equity. Yeah. Um, because for me, just looking at this through the lens of money, you know, I think there's a serious problem with having a world run on fiat currency, which is a debt-based money, which in itself is oxymoronic in a way, right? Like money is that which satisfies debt. So to have a debt-based money is almost like a contradiction in terms. And um, it's it's anti-equity in a way, right? It, it actually, the incentives embedded in fiat currency cause you to take on more indebtedness, right? When your money loses value every year, you have an incentive to borrow and then let the debt burden be inflated away over time. And I think that's why the world's at 350%-ish global debt to GDP today, right? That's not a natural state of things. That's a fiat-induced state of affairs. Um, what is that connection there, equity and righteousness? Because it's there's something, the other key point that I think this would get us to is like the Ayn Rand point, that property, like the ability to own the fruits of your labor is the foundation of civilization. And by the way, the only purpose of government is to preserve private property rights. That's the only purpose at all. And I would say that is equity. And that, that is, is equity. justice. So what happens? That's not how our modern view of equity. So how did we get from there, private property to equity to debt-based money, and now we have you know Klaus Schwab saying whatever, eating meat and owning property is evil by people not believing in a god, and I would argue in a personal god. This is the outcome of sort of post-enlightenment rationalism. Mm. So you have you know. Hume, way back when, this, you know, British skepticism. I mean, I'm, I'm being very, you know, painting very broad brushstrokes sure, in the so. last, you know, 300 years of philosophy. And you had Kant and you had all these people. And then you get to Nietzsche and then you get to sort of now, you know, postmodern. Mm -hmm. You think of like Foucault. And um, I think when you don't have a God, other things fill the vacuum.
Mm. And the Judeo-Christian God, if you properly read Paul, okay, because people could misinterpret, it's not merely... So if you talk to an atheist or a nihilist, it's generally, well, I went to church when I was a kid and, um, you know, maybe it was so-and-so was a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. Well, who cares about so-and-so? I mean, we all, we all have issues. But it's generally some common theme of someone's a hypocrite or uh, they, they don't have, know how to understand or account for evil in the world or, or raw injustices. Well, I don't think that has to do with God. I think it has to do with the world and, and just we, we live in a fallen world where people have this urge to self-interest mm-hmm. and we're always going to be at war to some degree. But I'm, I'm deeply concerned with the misinterpretation of even the word equity. And I think a lot of this is, it's a hermeneutical problem. So you say, well, how do we get here? I think American Christianity said we want to have converts and not fully have deep believers in a worldview. So we, we kind of connected in Hawaii about our children and how we're raising them. And I mean, my kids read the Quran. They know about Islam. They know about Judaism. They know about everything. I was like, we're not force feeding them anything. They know about logic and criticism. And, you know, I think if you go today, people, people are being taught another dogmatism. Mm-hmm. So I think whenever you have something that um, sort of the, to borrow a biblical kind of theme, it's the cycle of judges. Mm-hmm. The book of Judges, um, Israel was blessed. Then they fell into decadence, kind of where we are today. Mm-hmm. And then decadence led to a cultural decadence led to slavery. We're very close to that here. Mm. Why? Because of a wrong view of money, because of not having sound money, because of not having just weights and measures and we got off the gold standard and all that other stuff. And now the new standard, the only hope really is a Bitcoin standard, mm-hmm. right? That's the only way we're gonna be able to, to go forward, but we need a theology too, or else we'll just have some other vacuum, right? Like. Justin Trudeau seizing Coinbase accounts of people who held Bitcoin where you couldn't even give. Now, it's a more, um, a bigger argument for multi-sig wallets and holding your private keys yourself. But I think money is intricately woven with theology and statism. And I think our God wasn't loving your neighbor, Mm. wasn't do unto others. It was, what can I get for myself? So we had this kind of, you know, think about all the scandals you hear of in churches. I mean, they they exist in non-church realms, but generally American Christianity put money up there with God. Mm -hmm. So then it didn't get as many converts. So the reason we're post-Christian today is people saw hypocrisy 20, 30 years ago, and they sort of wrote it off. Right. Yeah, no, no, it's a great point that um, many people have pushed the institution of Christianity or other religions away because of some direct experience with an individual like that represented Christianity to them at a young age or something, right? So they saw corruption or malevolence or whatever in an individual, and then they think 
they they map that onto the whole institution and say, oh no, this whole thing is corrupt and lost. But to your point, um, the institution is bigger than any single individual, right? Like you could almost look at that's one perhaps scientific definition of Christianity is like it's a repository of all the moral knowledge we've accumulated throughout all of history, right? Because a lot of the stories in the Bible, they're, they come from deep oral traditions, right? Like the stories in Genesis and whatnot, these stories, we don't even know how old they are. They've just been passed on um, forever. And even the, the term, the Bible, I think it means something like library, right? So it's, it's not written by any individual. It's written by a lot of individuals. It's been edited and re-edited and it, it's, it's chronicling almost like the moral development of human beings in a way. So to try and just wrap that whole thing up and throw it out and say, no, we don't need that anymore. Like you're, it's, it's pulling the rug out from under your feet. And well, it's a story of redemption and we all need redemption. Right. Even in a cancel call. I mean, what is, uh, and that's where Christ probably comes into this, yeah. right? The story of redemption, the personal, a personal God wanting to redeem you yeah. from your sins, but not, not only that, but redeem the cosmos. But I think we all want redemption. Even if you don't believe in God, uh, think about cancel culture, right? Will Smith slapped Chris Rock mm. and people wanted a cross. Right. They didn't really know. I don't even think they know who do we, do we put Chris Rock on the cross <laughs> for insulting Jada? Do we put Will on the cross for slapping Chris Rock? And so you have all kinds of weird distortions because we don't really have a personal God, but we kind of need some redemption to what happened, mm -hmm. but everybody has their own. And so really now we're just in Rome where we have this gladiator concept and we're throwing people to the lions or to, mm -hmm. I mean, we are so much like Imperial Rome right now. It, it kind of troubles me. But. Yeah. And do you, so that decadence that you describe that leads to that, to this state of affairs, is that, is it a consequence of just material abundance or is it a consequence of the way we've actually structured the socioeconomic systems that led to that material abundance? I think it's both. Hmm. Generally, it seems that in times of material abundance, people forget whatever God brought them mm. through to their journey. But I, I, I do wonder that you know, when you have material abundance, but I think it's, it, it's we weren't self-aware. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason why I bring up Billy Graham is, Billy Graham is the you know, biggest figure in American Christianity last 100 years. And if you think, if, if anybody watched Billy Graham, you would not find him offensive. He's not actually a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Most of his things was, you have peace with God. Everybody wants peace with God. Mm -hmm. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I believe in that. Mm -hmm. The problem is there's no economic theory. There's no philosophical theory. And on the dais that he had, he sort of allowed this sphere of sovereignty, not the Kyperian sphere of sovereignty, but you see this now, like you can have Obama redefined the freedom of religion as the freedom of worship. You've heard that over and over again. Freedom of religion means 
you can believe things that are wrong, offensive, no matter what belief that is. Freedom of worship means you can have your own private faith, but you have to agree that you're not going to encroach upon the sovereignty of the state. Mm -hmm. So when you have state and church equal, which really state is now surpassed church. For sure. Um, but there was a time where it didn't, that the, the church allowed itself to be co-opted by kind of this neutrality. And no worldview is ever neutral. Mm -hmm. It's like whether your worldview is nihilistic, whether it's atheistic, your worldview determines everything. Absolutely. And and it's to your point, it's exclusionary, right? To look at something means you're not looking at other things. So to look at things in a certain way means you're not looking at it in other ways. So it cannot be neutral. And and I think like my parents who were sort of the Billy Graham generation, they didn't think, and maybe our, your parents as well, they didn't think deeply about this stuff. They wasn't, mm. they were just trying to love God, love their neighbor, love their family because they were, they were sort of in a zenith of American, uh, good times, good times. Yeah. Now we're going to need it. Now we're right. going to need a view of God. You talked about income inequality, but you didn't say it that mm. way, but on the left, people are struggling with income inequality on the right. People are struggling, struggling with income inequality, but they're calling it make America great again. And people say, oh, there's a racist impulse there. But I think really it's a socioeconomic impulse. Mm -hmm. People are struggling. Their their job, their money is, is, is so corrupted. The fiat system has just made their dollars worth less. And so they're going to Caesar saying, make us better. They're going to mm -hmm. Greenspan, keep rates low. But what they don't realize is because our money is so screwed up, now, milk costs six to eight bucks a gallon. And it's only going to get worse mm -hmm. until we fix the money. Right. And, and Bitcoin does fix that. But I think the reason we've gotten here is because people don't think about God and money. And it's kind of like something you don't want to think about. Yeah. So maybe this is, and I don't, I don't know a lot about Billy Graham, but this idea of peace with God, if you're just looking at God, again, the idea of God is this concept of exchange or constant renewal and change. Peace with that through Christ, right? And Christ representing effectively the highest archetypal consciousness of man, right? Not, something none of us could ever achieve, but we should all aspire to, right? He, he meets betrayal with love and he makes the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, effectively, he's the perfect human, right? He's an archetypal story because it's a story pushed to its absolute limits. And I, I'm just thinking, like, is there an economic component to that? I'm thinking of like, isn't it Matthew 21, where he goes into the temple and he sees the money changers uh, manipulating the weights and measures to take advantage of people in the marketplace. And that's the one time in the Bible, Jesus loses his shit, right? He flips the tables and scatters these people. Is that not the type of energy we should have towards people corrupting our money and our socioeconomic systems if the consequences are so unbelievably disastrous for us and our children? Oh, exactly. Because people are, are going to be crying out for greater statist solutions right. if we don't fix the money. And that's how, if, if you look at every story of tyranny in human history, it's there being some type of God vacuum in a decadent 
society that leads people. I mean, we've had friends, probably mutual friends. I'm not going to say their name in the Bitcoin community. They go, well, why do you have to believe in God? Like, why, why are you so um, into that? Because I've just studied history. Yeah. You look at Mao. You look at what happened in Stalin's Russia. Yeah. You know, Lenin in Russia, they were decrying the excesses of a decadent, kind of out-of-touch monarchy in Russia. But they had the wrong solution. The right. solution, if you go to Hitler, what was the solution? State. If you right. go to Pol Pot, if you go to right. virtually... Uh, always more Castro, It always starts out like... If you talk to people when Castro, uh, you know, took over Cuba, they, they loved him. They had the birds, the birds mm -hmm. fall on them, you know. Right. There's a lot of stories that, you know, were mythic. And then, you know, years later it became a tyranny and all these people died because when there is no consequence to human interaction, mm -hmm. if there is no heaven or hell, you just do whatever the heck you want. Let's kill our enemies because they are merely... That's why pro progressive being come, becoming a, a good word now is actually mm -hmm. so dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because then if you're against the state, you're against progress, we're going to kill you. Right. And if you look at Imperial Rome, and my thing about Christian misinterpretation, misinterpretation don't get me wrong, Billy Graham, great man, his message, I believe, peace with God through Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is that was a very reductionist worldview mm -hmm. that then, you know, we should have theodicy, which, or theodicy, which is how do you account for evil? Like when you go to church, right? Mm -hmm. There should be sermons on, well, how do you account for losing people? Theodicy, right. problem of evil. We talked about, you're reading some John Calvin. Yeah. He talks big about that, but yeah. people don't, um, People don't know how to account for money. So they're just like, okay, whatever the state tells us because God granted them authority. It's very funny. Uh, Sylvia Kiesmott and Brian Walsh, mm -hmm. these are not like conservatives. They are, I mean, they actually kind of wrote their book called Romans Remixed, mm -hmm. sort of as a treatise on you know, it was kind of like trashing Trump and American Christianity. But what I, what I appreciated about there, he has an article called To Hell with Romans 13. Hmm. And the whole concept is, wrote it in like 2008, was that people were using George Bush, at that time, George W. Bush's faith for sort of a defense on uh, war, the war in Iraq, war Afghanistan, that kind of this blind acceptance. It's very funny, like people on the left have, have really thought through about these issues a little bit more on the right of how do you deal with, or libertarians or Bitcoiners, how do you deal with a state issue in your, in your, in your belief system? And he goes into Romans 13, obey the governing authorities that whole passage was misinterpreted. Mm. And it's read out of context from Romans 12 and the latter part of Romans 13. So I think we all, you know, dealing with, you know, your daughter, my seven kids, everybody, 
has to deal with this issue of seer sovereignty, which is like, when do you obey the governing authority? Like I tell my kids, you know, we go to church. We go to, if, if the nursery school worker is touching you, there was a book called Samuel learns to yell and tell you got to tell people that right. Cause apparently creeps hang out in churches or in not to be, you know, no. you know, the, the, uh, certain faiths have gotten more trashed on that, that issue. And rightfully so if there was sexual abuse, but what we have to realize is like our kids can't be naive. It can't be right. naive to that. They're evil, that evil exists. Yes. And, state statism is a form of evil mm -hmm. and it's a sinister form of evil because when we go through trial without God, we want state cult of Greenspan cult of mm -hmm. Fauci mm -hmm. cult of Jerome Powell. Mm -hmm. So what happens if they raise rates too much? Will our life still have meaning, you know? So this is really about man's quest for meaning. Mm -hmm. Like whether you believe in something or not, like if your meaning is COVID, Imagine, think about this, think about the tragedy of COVID deaths, right? And I have a, a wonderful grandmother who's like 90 and she was getting emaciated, couldn't eat because she was just depressed. She couldn't see her family for months. Huh. So June of 2020, she said, screw this. If I die, I die. I trust in the Lord, She's a very devout Catholic woman. I, I know where I'm going. <laughs> I'm just going to be with my kids and grandkids. And she's had a, she's still living. But think about it is if you did everything that Fauci told you to do, you washed your hands, you wore the masks, you got your vax, you did all that. You did exactly what the state told you. And then you died in the midst of that, that happened. Mm -hmm. So you had the last two years of your life taken from you by the state. Now I'm not minimizing COVID death. I've lost so many clients and dear loved ones over COVID. It's a horrific uh, disease and bioweb, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's evil. And no, in, um, in lack of compassion of people lost people, it's, mm. it's the worst thing. I lost so many dear people uh, due to COVID. But um, some of them I lost, they had a great last two years. Mm -hmm. Others, they cowered in fear. And I mean, I got to know my kids more. I got to be more plugged into my children during the last two years. Sure, was I a little scared the first two months? Like everybody, yeah. Because um, we didn't really know what it was. But then after a while, when we started seeing the state fill that vacuum and medicine filled the role of God, mm -hmm. just like Greenspan, money filled the role of God. Right. It's really how you relate and, and money and that whole concept of equity, right? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not want to defraud them in the money. So people say, well, why are the rich getting richer? You know, we're filming this in Miami and Miami beach houses are now what? $30 million. Well, they benefited, the rich benefited from low interest rates, easy money, mm -hmm. fed policy. Now poor people can afford a home for the first time, but now they can't. Mm -hmm. So at first low interest rates were a good sign until they're not because we view our money cheaply. We don't even have a right view of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the very least, uh, Terrence Yang, do you know him from Swan Bitcoin? I think so, yeah. We, we had this discussion one time of, if we had a sound money system, what would a CD earn? 
you know, think about that. If we had sound money, not Bitcoin, you'd be able to store your money at the bank and earn some interest off of it, right? Because there would be some value to the produce of your labor. Now mm -hmm. there's none. Mm -hmm. Literally the produce of your labor is worthless because we've adopted a state theology that the Fed is all knowing and all powerful. Right. And then when a crash happens, they'll say, oh, the Fed didn't really cause that. It was due to whatever. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I think there's a deep ignorance surrounding money. Obviously, that's what we're kind of doing on this show. Let's try to talk about it a little more and educate people. Um, but I would say that central banking, the existence of it is the reason the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Probably the, it's even the reason that is such a, that's a saying that has stuck in our common vernacular over time because we've always had this integration of money and state. State always, the monopoly on violence always monopolizes money right to its own advantage. Like you said earlier about Bitcoiners asking like, why do we need to believe and all of this stuff? Um, and I, I kind of like sympathize with that angle that it's so hard to try and interpret the Christian view through like kind of the scientific lens we've all inherited. Like we always, it's very hard to see <laughs> you have to get meta with this. This also has to do with money to see what is seeing, right? Because as you said earlier, your worldview shapes how you see the world clearly. So if you don't take off those glasses and examine them, sometimes you might not even understand what presuppositions you're bringing to the table, what assumptions you're bringing to every perception. And for me, you know, like I grew up Christian in the South, veered a lot in my adult life, came back to it, through actually Bitcoin and discovering the work of someone like Peterson. And one thing that I really liked about his angle 
people ask him, you know, Mr. Peterson, do you believe in God? His answer is typically something like, no, but I act as if I do. And so what I like about that answer is that it puts the emphasis on action, right? It doesn't even matter, in my opinion, so much, doesn't matter as much. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter as much what you profess to believe, what you profess to cognitively hold in your worldview, so much as it does, how do you express yourself in action in the world, right? That's what actually moves the world, if you will, much more so than what you might cognitively believe. And so I think we had it figured out with Western civilization, like life, liberty, property, that just pretty easy. It's just freedom, right? It's freedom uh, in three different temporal dimensions. But again, we've moved so far away from that. And to pull one example, modern social justice, another of this, it's an attack on language itself because it's not social and it's not justice, right? This is people that believe they can coerce others into behaving properly according to their worldview. So this is, it is fiat, right? It's the imposition of opinion, the, the imposition of, of, an, of an alternative worldview onto someone. But that imposition itself is contradictory to freedom, right? So it's undermining Western civilization itself. Um, and I think, again, if, if we're looking at this idea of fiat and the, the inherent evil of it, I would argue it's inherently evil. I think if you look at that through the Bible, we say, okay, what is fiat? Well, the original fiat was fiat lux. God said, let there be light, right? There was one decree that started everything. So all the human fiat we now have in the world where it's like, do this because I said so or else, these are humans playing God effectively. And that always leads to disastrous outcomes. And okay, that's kind of like a theological interpretation of it, but you can look at it pragmatically in the scope of history and you're like, indeed it does lead to disastrous outcomes every single time. If people aren't engaging in action because they want to, like voluntarily, right, out of their own self-interest or at least in consideration of their own self-interest, then it's not going to lead to a sustainable binding of our socioeconomic systems. They come apart. I mean, I, there's something so tightly related here, like with our tech, the way we technologically implement our world and then the way we perceive it. And it just seems like this idea of fiat money and legislation, and I guess distancing ourselves from God or this, this idea that we can play God via fiat has corrupted us, has corrupted our systems and has corrupted our perceptions of the world. So it's scary. Yeah. I'm thinking of, kind of the phrase, everyone has an angle. Yeah. In a fiat world, you're always like, well, what's this guy's angle? You know? Yeah. And why are they, you know, are they trying to screw me? I, I, had an in, I have an intern, he's 20 working for me. And I, I give him little tasks that, frankly, it's, it's kind of like annoying because I have to like tell him to do this. And, and one of the things he's learning is like, he's like, everybody's trying to screw you. And... Now, this is a nice young man, kind of an idealist. And I go, yeah, you got to learn that. You got, you got to be as wise, as Jesus said, you got to be as wise as a serpent <laughs> and as harmless as a dove. <laughs> and that's actually sort of the interpretation on Romans 13 I landed uh, because they were 
to kind of go back to the Romans 13, obey governing authorities. Well, yeah, Paul was writing a letter where if it was intercepted and it said to disobey, he would have been killed right away. So what did he do? He put some subversive elements in the language, all book subversive, basically. So voluntarism, you know, the, the, the fact that I would argue, you know, it's interesting. You're looking at the consequence of an idea. I'm looking at the idea, but it's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. The consequence of no belief in God is where we currently find ourselves. And the consequence of no practical belief, I would argue that, you know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, people maybe believed in God, they believed in a biblical God, but they didn't live like it because it was merely fire insurance. It was a way to escape hell. Mm. Wasn't a way for cosmic renewal. That's why I think the keys are in Romans because you have the peace with God verses, but you also have the cosmic renewal verses. And I think you even have equity, righteousness, and the redefinition of terms. So I've read certain passages where people are redefining it as justice. They're not even equating righteousness. Now, justice in terms of just weights and measures is appropriate. Justice in terms of the state wielding coercive power to punish its enemies always ends badly. Mm-hmm. It always ends in mass slaughter. I think I've, I've read something where, you know, people would say, well, what, what about the Crusades or, or all these, you know, well, who cares? I mean, it doesn't mean the people in the name of religion were pure in their motives or in their actions. I'm, I'm not advocating that. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the last hundred years of human history, more people have been murdered mm-hmm. than at any century in the last 5,000 years of recorded history. In the name of atheism, if you look at Stalin, mm-hmm. if you look at Hitler, if you look at, and it wasn't, it, atheism's wrong, actually, it's state religion. I would say it would be an imperial yeah. cult, and our imperial cult in the U.S. just happens to be kind of money, maybe money, sex, power, is yeah. kind of that, that's sort of an unholy trinity, if you will. And a, and a rightful trinity to kind of bring people back and approach Christian era would be life, liberty, property, mm-hmm. because we can all kind of agree on that. But we have to define liberty because now people can't say certain things or else they're going to get canceled or no freedom of speech. People forget Antonin Scalia, what, like in the eighties, he did that flag burning bill. I remember that the, they had the flag burning ruling Supreme court and he was one of the biggest defenders of the right of freedom of speech, even if that speech was offensive and burning the flag, which, you know, I find that kind of distasteful. I would never do that, but I would celebrate your right to do it. And we don't, we don't have a, even a, I would say it's all worldview. I think it's ideas and praxis. I think your ideology, your theology, mm will flow to your praxis. Mm -hmm. Do you believe in a distant God, deism? You're going to kind of live your life that way. Believe in atheism, you're going to kind of live your life that way. You believe in a personal God, you're going to believe that way. Interesting thing, just something 
you made me think about the nature of covenants is foundation to scripture. Hmm. Uh, circumcision was literally in the Hebrew scriptures, you were cutting a covenant. A, bar- a barit is a covenant. And the word, the verb is like to cut a covenant. So that was a promise that God would not forsake Israel in, in the book of Genesis or Bereshit in the Hebrew scriptures. But then you kind of fast forward. Jesus was in a way a covenant keeping. He is, you know, kind of the, mm-hmm. the archetypal covenant keeper. He'd rather die and be resurrected to bring his fallen children back than let fallen creation languish without redemption. So it, it's everywhere, the whole nature of covenant. Bitcoin, why, why do I think Bitcoin is such an appeal? Since it's you know, predominantly a Bitcoin-themed show. Covenant, private key, public mm. key, it's on the blockchain for all to see. Mm. So it's like a declaration, we're not screwing each other. This is a transaction, you can't renege your promise. I mean, think about how many times you, you fight with people over returns mm-hmm. or over this or over that. Mm-hmm. In a Bitcoin world, you won't have that. People will have to be true to their word, true to their covenant, covenants of promise. It's all over scripture is that act of covenant. And I would say that is where I would kind of push back a little bit on praxis ideology. I think the, the kind of the motif of a covenant is better mm-hmm. because there's something real. Or, or Bitcoin in a way. Mm-hmm. There, there's a transaction that's put on the on the public for the public to see. It's a private key, public key. In a way, the covenant of God, his love, our faithfulness, we don't want to break covenant. Mm-hmm. And that is somewhat is what is lacking in kind of the Western church. We we assume God loves us, not to be, you know, yeah. God will be okay with us but we can sort of live however we want. And that's sort of an, an aspect of revivalism, which what I call cheap grace, meaning as long as you believe, mere belief, you can sort of live like the devil and at, at, at your last moment, now I firmly believe, you know, you could have redemption at your last moment, but so many people in the name of religion will mistreat people. Mm-hmm. They will live actually fiat religion, you, you could say. Mm-hmm. But they, but I would say it's because they have no covenant. Mm-hmm. They have no relationship with God. They have fallen really. So, so the, that kind of metaphor of the covenant, like it's more, it's like how marriage is supposed to be. Yeah. It's not supposed to be merely contractual um, where there's transaction. And I think that's where I think that's where Bitcoiners who are more like atheistic or agnostic, they in a sense are deeply covenantal mm-hmm. and their belief is in the covenant of Bitcoin right? because it is the only sort of trustless money system. But then that is in essence trusted because you're trusting something that takes into account right. people's fallenness yes. and self-impulse. No, that, that's well said. Maybe the, the ideal the idea of covenant is the bridge between the ideological and action or praxis, exactly. right? Because yeah. you're, you're, and that's what covenant is, right? You're putting it down on paper or in whatever information bearing medium that's setting 
and aligning expectations between two parties for future action. So it's an idea that's driving future action. Um, and even, yeah, as you say with Bitcoin, yeah, you're not, that's the beauty of it is you have a covenant with a, there's, I mean, there's a mathematical framework in place, elliptic curve cryptography, the individual self-interest of miners and holders, you know, so you're, you're trusting individual self-interest or this Darwinian pursuit of self-preservation. You're trusting mathematics, you're trusting thermodynamics, right? You're trusting things that are very trustworthy versus trusting someone's opinion or someone's declaration by fiat. Um, presumably really something that can last over time a lot longer. And that's really what religion should be. You're mm -hmm. not merely just taking someone's word for it. Mm -hmm. There's a transaction of trust. There's a covenant. It's interesting. The, the, the uh, comment you made about the 20th century, too, that we've lost more human life in the 20th century than any other, you know, that Ron Paul's got the great quote there that the 20th century was a century of total war, and it's no coincidence that it was also the century of central banking. I mean, this violation, this movement away from God, from life, liberty, and property, let's say, that the Judeo-Christian mythical substructure upholds to something like central banking that's premised on the violation of property leads to and funds this the largest scope, duration, and severity of warfare the world has ever seen, right? So it's like that this seemingly less atrocious act of evil of just violating everyone's property a little bit by printing money leads to actual visceral brutal violations of, of person and property in world war one and world war two so it's not like we're not just out here philosophizing about like, oh this is really bad and might lead to something bad it's like just observe the 20th century how did we fund those war efforts right it was not off of the balance sheet of the countries alone they all engaged in fiat currency manipulation to pilfer the savings of their entire societies. So it's really bad. It's really, really bad when we get away from these, these foundational pillars. Um, and I just don't know what we can do without something like Bitcoin, frankly, because it seems like we'll always inject that human element of just trust me or just trust this country or just trust this bank. And that always falls to the fallible human that always is fallible. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I think we have to get to this, kind of to go back to this fear sovereignty point. When Kuiper, and, and maybe you can post up that, the, the various mm -hmm, fears. Yeah. When Kuiper talks about Christ being Lord of all, he was actually rec kind of reckoning how does he, as a minister who was, you know, kind of a prime minister of a country, how does he deal with people who have difference of opinion, different beliefs? Well, he believed God gave someone a free will to believe as they would. And so he was able to be charitable to other people. So the sphere of sovereignty concept, like we don't talk about that society. And how do we how do we grow? Well, we got to get better money supply. We got to get we got money system. Bitcoin. We got to strengthen the family. Families are so weak. Mm -hmm. And and I remember I don't know if this quote is attributed to Karl Marx falsely or not, but 
you know, they tried to have a Marxist revolution in the U.S. what a hundred years ago, and it failed. And somebody said, I don't, I don't know exactly what it was Lenin, Stalin, one of them, one, one of the Marxists, said something like, "We can't have." sort of a communist revolution in America until we've weakened the church and the family, right. basically. And the last hundred years have been a slow chipping away at mm-hmm. everything. So then who's going to define family? Well, the state will. Who, right. who, who will adjudicate divorces? Who will adjudicate? Who, who gets the kids? Um, you know, there are so many issues that a Judeo-Christian worldview accounts for, even though the concept of like alimony and child support are sort of based on the, on a concept of not defrauding your neighbor. If, if you, you know, terminate your relationship, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've raised X number of children with this person, you know, this number, and, and we can talk about the in, in equities in that system, but, uh, that's for another another day. But all of those stem, I think, the good in them uh-huh. stems from a Judeo-Christian worldview. The bad in them stems from, like, we don't know now, well, who gets who? What, what if you have, I mean, basically now the state really is defining health, defining wealth. And part of me is like, well, we're just like screwed <laughs> as a country. But I think your show, my show, others in the Bitcoin community, I think it fixes it because we're asking questions that were never asked before. Mm-hmm. We're thinking a little more self-consciously. If candidates like Ron Paul, who never would have existed, you know, maybe 50 years ago, mm-hmm. you talk about World War One, World War II, what about Korea? What about the Cold War? Mm-hmm. What about Persian Gulf crisis, Iraq war, Afghanistan? Yeah. I mean, how is that, how is that Christian to just, you know, print money, it's not. Well, no. because we had a cult, sort of a cult of U.S. patriotism. And now we have sort of a cult of kind of a AOC kind of quasi-socialist cult that's not really believing anything. But they believe, you know what? The state is going to come and adjudicate the wrongs of society, which yeah. never ends well. Yeah, I would all, almost argue that you could say it's the cult of democracy, right? We you ask 100 Americans, you're probably going to get 100 yeses that democracy is the best thing we've ever created as human beings. And there's a lot of text out there that, that is contrary to that, right? I'm I'm thinking of Hoppe's book, Democracy, the God that Failed, right? It's just, it's another model of statism. There are certain trade-offs. It seems to be pretty good at preventing like an absolute authoritarian because you cycle people out every four to eight years. But there's trade-offs to that, right? Um, You end up getting a lot of people cutting private deals when they're in a position of power to kind of uh, increase their own wealth. There's a great quote: uh, "Every public auction is an every public election is an advanced auction on stolen goods." So when people get in office, they're cutting deals to get rich, and then they're out, and that's it, right? That's the whole scheme. Doesn't make democracy like the ultimate be-all, end-all form of the state uh, might be better in some ways, might be worse in some ways, but we have this cultish belief that it's just absolutely superior. Um, we talked about that a little bit in Hawaii. Like, how do we how do we fix this? 
<laughs> I mean, you know, Bitcoin fixes some. Having conscious discussion of theology, one's view of raising a family helps. Seeing status principles, even in, you know, Disney, we were talking, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, there, there's a lot of interesting themes where what are we letting our kids watch? What are we letting our kids listen to? What are we listening to? Mm -hmm. What are we injecting? Right. You know, um, in our mind, just polluting us with really fiat. I mean, think about this. If subconsciously, I think the Fed, and probably you do, has some control on the world. Like, yeah. that's, but want, like, but that's like a subconscious religious belief. We just have to evolve to where it becomes, you know, audit the Fed and the Fed, you know, mm. they're not all powerful. I mean, we are seeing a subtle minority group of that. But I mean, even though I agree with that, mm -hmm. I'm kind of worried if the Fed raises rates, the whole US is gonna have a depression. I mean, think about this. Could we, could the U.S. stand 5% rates? Probably not. You know, what, what's going to happen to the, to the stock market, to the real estate market? Um, because everything is just pumped up. I think eventually they're going to have to do something because, but, but why are we giving them the authority? Who are they? They're not even, that's not even dem democratic. No one voted. For yeah, exactly. Reason. Right. Yeah. Even if you were an ardent believer in democracy, you could not justify central banking through that, right? To your point, unelected, right? Just basically a private banking cartel that's hijacked the legal monopoly on money effectively, right? Um, and we resisted it. We resisted implementation of the central bank m multiple times in the United States. I think it took three attempts before it got through. And now we have Broadway plays that celebrate the author of such a system for us. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Like, Oh, Hamilton. Great, 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 great show. <laughs> no, the, 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 I prefer Andrew Jackson, the guy that punched a central banker in the face. I mean, but we're, uh, you know, but we're taught one thing about Hamilton and one thing about Jackson. I don't even know if those things are true. Yeah. I, I'm not a Jacksonian scholar. Right. I mean, what I've, what I've read about Hamilton, you know, and central banking isn't good. Yeah. And what I've read about Jackson punching, but I, I, I can't really speak to that historical issue, but like, we just have a myth, yeah. a U.S. myth, mm -hmm. Jackson bad, trail of tears. Right. Get him off the $20 bill. Um, right. Hamilton, good. He's in a play, yeah. you know, he was yeah. ahead of his time, but maybe the one was far more evil. Maybe this whole idea of, and I don't know if we'll ever get past this as, species but deifying individuals at all right like that's if you're taking that religious impulse and then you're basically attaching it to individuals right at that point they're saying hamilton bad jackson good yeah, we're whoever. looking for a savior a personal right. covenantal we want we want some some aspect of god in flesh it's right where we get the word incarnation god in flesh yeah so christmas time the incarnation um I'm worried about, you made me think of something, but go ahead. Well, I, so we mentioned inflation fanning the flames of warfare, right? The, the scale and scope of devastation in the 20th century driven by fiat currency inflation. We also mentioned the destruction of the nuclear family. I think inflation directly contributes to that as well, 
right? Oh, yeah. we, we've seen productivity and wages diverge since 1971. It now, you know, a family used to be able to get by on a single income earner. Now you need two full-time income earners. So that means the kids are in daycare full-time. Being uh, raised by the state. Raised by the state just to survive, right? Just to make ends meet. So, And the state has an agenda in their yeah. educational system. So it's all connected, right? Again, life, liberty, property. You start breaking these things down, all of it dissolves around you. Everything, all of this kind of nested structure we depend on for peace and you know, you can drive down the road, you can go to the grocery store. There's all these things we just take for granted. Well, that's all built on a structure that we're attacking, right? We're empowering the state to attack that structure. The whole thing's going to wobble and collapse at some point. And it seems like we're damn near close to that. It's a house of cards. Now, I'm a little bit worried about people like us or libertarian <laughs> anarcho-capitalist types maybe a little more conservative than you are on that, but more traditional. But I'm really worried. I guess my big thesis here would be the state is filling the vacuum now. Mm -hmm. Like I remember like 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I wanted the whole system to collapse because then I would think a new system would rise and mm -hmm. we would have voluntarism and mm -hmm. societies would be able to merge. But that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. It's not what happened in COVID. But the state just got bigger. You would have thought, right? Just think about COVID, right? I, I, um, homeschooling's on the rise. We homeschool our kids, home educate them. You would have thought, right, that this was the libertarian moment. Because now you had teachers, and my wife was a public school teacher, so I have nothing but the utmost respect for them. You had public teachers not wanting to teach, not wanting to jeopardize themselves. They were going on Zoom they were tasked with maybe what they weren't prepared for. That was the perfect moment to say, we don't need state-run education. Imagine every taxpayer getting back their money just on that one issue. All your money that you give to the state for raising your kids gets into a pool and you could stay at home with your kids if you want to. That'd be cool. That'd be voluntaristic. Pool of money would, would develop. It would revolutionize society. More kids would be, people would be at home. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to family members who they get depressed when they have to work and their kid's two years old and they can't be with them. I mean, the abolition of state-run education would be great, but it wasn't because we've seeded babysitting our children to teachers and teachers complain about that. They say, we're not, we're teachers, we're not babysitters. So you would have thought that COVID would have led to a resurgence in that. It did. I mean, I think their, their homeschooling doubled as a, as a percentage. And our kids are joyful, happy. And they actually enjoyed it because they got to still go to school. They got, yeah. they got to hang out with other kids. They were socialized. I always love that when people say, are your kids social? <laughs> when, you know, like, no, I hate my children. <laughs> People literally ask me that. They'll say stuff like, are your kids, what about socialization? I'm like, no, I, I don't love my children. Uh, confusing it with socialism? Why are they asking the question? Well, they would think if you're, if you're homeschooling them. Ah, uh, they don't get socialized. That they're not getting a socialization aspect. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're on the beach in Kauai, learning to surf, reading books. You have like 
for the audience, some of the most intelligent, well-behaved kids I've ever seen in my life. Like very they blessed. were, we were very impressed. And we have one really young daughter, so we would aspire that she could be on that level at some point. Someday. And Rome's not built in a day. And I think it was my son, actually, now that I think about it, who approached your daughter mm. and girlfriend because he's just always cheerfully greeting everyone. Mm -hmm. um, because there's no, there's no bullying. I mean, other than, you know, older siblings ribbing on their younger siblings yeah. or, uh, you know, there's different power dynamics. But, you know, they're not, they're not getting... Uh, bullied at school to kind of snuff out that intellectual pursuit. Right. My, I would have thought that our, our public education system, right, would have a class on logic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And critical mm -hmm. thinking. That doesn't have any of that. No. I mean, forget God, forget home education. Mm -hmm. you, if, if I was building a curriculum. Logic would, seems like a good starting point. <laughs> <laughs> how to think, how to reason. My 13-year-old and 11-year-old, they're taught logical fallacies. Oh. And they know more about logic than me because I, <laughs> I went to public school. I, I don't oh. really know. They're like, Dad, that, that, that's uh, this fallacy. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you're giving. I can't have a, a d debate with my 13-year-old <laughs> and my wife. They win every single debate. That's funny. All right, so I love that. Great segue, actually. Statism, I think it might be a kind of a logical fallacy itself, right? Because we have a social institution charged with the preservation of property. So maintaining the integrity of relationship between owners and assets, right? That's what property is, the, the relationship of property. But that very institution funds itself through the violation of property via taxation and inflation. Was this just a necessary evil? I mean, because it seems like pre-Bitcoin, there was no way to preserve property at all without this enforcer. And even post-Bitcoin, we still need that enforcer for physical property, right? Just not money necessarily. Is that the issue here? Is that why statism is evil? It's just a necessary evil? We just need, there needs to be a veto on its power or its overgrowth, and that's what Bitcoin ultimately represents? Or... I don't know. Do you see it a different way? How, how do you see it? I think, because we, we wove some biblical scriptures in, I think of Saul, where if you read the ancient um, Hebrew texts, King Saul was Israel's first king. Mm -hmm. And God did not want there to be a king. God's mm -hmm. very clear. He wanted individuals to be sovereign under moral code, Ten Commandments, he didn't want any state run power at all. And he warned them. Mm -hmm. And God was like sad in the, in the text mm. that the Israelites chose Saul because he was basically tall and good looking <laughs> instead of him and his system where you, know, you would have the judge or the prophet at that time. Mm. And basically wanted people to self-govern. They would have, it was sort of in, in a way, it was anarcho-capitalistic. You had these elders of society and, wow. it, you know, you, they would adjudicate uh, basically property disputes. That was basically. Which book is this about in? Um, if you read the Torah, oh. first five books of Moses, 
when Moses calls the elders, he called various uh, sub-leaders to basically adjudicate property right, gotcha. property issues and disputes. Yeah. That was basically all God wanted government to do, yeah. adjudicate disputes between his people. And then Moses was not really supposed to be involved in that. He was supposed to get holy words from God that the people would follow. Mm -hmm. And then subsequently, Samuel was the prophet before Saul was king. And the people wouldn't have any. They wanted a king. They wanted a personification of God. You see that even in Bitcoin circles. Like people mm -hmm. say, oh, this, this per Elon Musk pumps Bitcoin, then he dumps it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're always seeking a savior inherently, mm -hmm. with, even within the Bitcoin community. Yeah. Um, and then people get disappointed and say, oh, you know, they're now. Well, then Bitcoiners go on a rampage about killing your heroes, which exactly. maybe is not bad advice, actually. Yeah. I have a slight distinction on that. I don't think it's bad to kill your heroes. I think we as a society need, we can't just be deconstructionists. We have to construct things mm -hmm. in order to have a cohesive yeah. uh, system or else the state will fill that vacuum. Right. I'm, I'm very, I think that's the flaw of the last 20 years. We've all been these isolating yeah. uh, independent thinkers who were sort of thinking alike, but we never banded together. Right. Except maybe you would say Ron Paul, maybe the last 20 years was kind of the <laughs> galvanizer of that impulse. But then after him, you know, nobody's really kind of built some coalition of, yeah. Of people and we need to be building coalitions and constructing some heroes and social stories to tell ourselves even if they're not judeo-christian because we're in danger of losing liberty completely right in the name of these kind of issues of equity and property it all comes back to property and that Everything. right to property because uh -huh. do you really believe that someone has a right to property even if they hold views distasteful of you that's either a yes or no question. Right. <laughs> if you talk to people in certain spheres on the right and the left, you know, they would say, oh, that, yeah. that person should be punished for X, Y, Z. But I, I think of Saul, basically, for some reason, when, when he asked that question, I went to Saul mm -hmm. and, and the story that Israel did not want God to be their king, which I know you talk a lot about sovereignty mm -hmm. and individual sovereignty. Yep. God basically wanted them to self-govern which I think is a big thing on parenting. People say, how do you deal with seven kids? I call it free range parenting. If you give them a certain set of principles and you don't overlord them, they kind of self-regulate and self-govern. There's an interesting book that I glanced at. I, I don't remember its title, but it was like the rules for success in the future. It was almost like Jordan Peterson's rules before that mm. and one of them was don't tear down your heroes which is interesting mm. and the other was something about allow your kids to like scrape their knee and oh yeah allow like them fall on the grass type thing and allow them to have alone time out in the air with their friends and you know they'll 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 do some bad things and then they'll do some good things and they'll kind of then come back to you with that freedom that limited freedom they have mm -hmm. say well dad what about this what about it's actually the best way is to kind of give them some freedom while they're like 13 or 12 or 10 so that then when they fail, they can go back to you and then re reason things. And that's almost how God, 
set things up in the Hebrew scriptures. And basically, yes, for the text, kind of later part of the Torah, Exodus on, mm. parts of Judges where there were, were the judges, then you'd have Samuel, kind of the last prophet before, and you see first Samuel, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings, tells that story. And basically the whole, like a third of the Hebrew Bible is Israel sought a king and the king failed them. And the, the implication was there was only one king, God, that could really fill that void. But before that, it was kind of like God wanted them to be, they, they went to the promised land and God wanted them to kind of self-govern. And there are times where if you have a self-governing body, like in sort of an, our ideal potentially mm -hmm. might be, we would have local tribes and uh, people would volunteer uh, themselves and their own freedom a little bit when there was a dispute with their neighbors or something about, you know, your, your tree fell on my right. uh, side of the street. And that's sort of where you get a lot of tort law developed kind of from Mosaic law and Jews to this day study the Talmud and different, you know, Talmudic laws is, is a big thing. But, but I think it goes back to our country, no king but Caesar state is there we're here mm -hmm. and the only way we can solve that is by atheists realizing that by christians realizing that by people who believe in patriotism believing in that because the patriotic cult right kind of the whatever you might call it has now been replaced by a big tech pharmacological medical cult Right. And then we may be replaced by a different cult. You know, you got to realize the French Revolution led to an era of tyranny mm -hmm. all across. You know, Napoleonic era was because the French Revolution did not have the right view of equity. Mm -hmm. Really, they read Romans wrong. And how you read Romans and how you understand righteousness. So is righteousness equity, to go back to that, or is righteousness justice, and how do we define equity? Is equity me stripping you of your property rights? I think Bitcoin fixes it. I think your view of, you know, liberty, we, we're not even taught liberty, life, and property. No, we're taught liberty, no. life, and pursuit of happiness. Yeah, right. That's Which is nebulous. Very difficult, nebulous for sure, and difficult if not impossible to pursue happiness if you cannot preserve the fruits of your own labor and property. What does that even mean? You can't you can't accumulate value for yourself or your family if you don't have property. So it's nebulous and dangerous, I think, to, to pursue that. We don't know how to get out. Like everyone here, we're in this like enlightenment mode mm -hmm. of like skepticism, belief. Does that make sense? You were saying well, something yeah, that yeah, I wanted to riff on, but I couldn't remember it. Well, I, it's something that I call it like the materialist worldview. Yeah. Where like I came up on, you know, whatever you think the world, the world is made of atoms and the billiard balls and Newtonian clockwork universe. Like we have this whole preconception we get in traditional education, but there's a whole nother side to this. It's non-materialist, like the realm of relevance and value. 
And so books like yeah. the Bible, books yeah. like Human Action by Mises, like it's not like things aren't, it's not about the material thing. It's about its relevance to our course of action. You got me thinking about the enlightenment and we are a product of the enlightenment, even if we don't realize it. Yeah. So think of dark ages, uh, Roman Catholic church kind of dictated what Kings would do and other things like that. So we are a product of the enlightenment. Even post-modernity is post-modern. Mm. And you talk about materialism now, kind of where this materialistic bent. If you go back, Kant, Hume, the British skeptics, you go to skepticism sort of in faith has led us to where we are now, to where now the only faith we have is sort of the faith in matter mm -hmm. and materialism. Right. And I know you have some thoughts on that you'd like to share. So I want you to share them. But I, it just got me thinking about transcendence. Like a materialistic worldview does not account for mystery, mm -hmm. does not account for the birth of your child. Mm -hmm. It does not account uh, for the love of, you know, the love of your life and that mystery. It does not account for the agony of death. And even like you lose a pet, that, where do they go? What's their soul? Nothing, like why, why, you know, why do you care so much if the matter is gone? Other than mm -hmm. obviously you're missing them, but there's something etched in the human heart that we, we have eternity etched in our hearts that is transcendent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, we inherit this worldview effectively. A lot, a lot of it's post enlightenment, as you're describing, um, and a lot of this would be foundational to the nihilism we were discussing at the beginning of this conversation. Like, if everything is just mechanical clockwork universe, and we're just some kind of, um, you know, emergent property of the universe, and like nothing matters, basically. Um, but there is that distinction, right? There is sort of like matter in organic reality happening around it around us but we actually in our day-to-day -day actions we're much more concerned with what matters relative than matter itself and that is you know significance relative um, um sorry significance things like market value right like why do people pay 60 million dollars for a leonardo da vinci painting like it's just some atoms of paint on a canvas. Like what makes it so, why is it, well, people expend so much human energy and wealth to acquire that thing. Um, and it's, it's extremely complicated. Like, I, and that's where I think the Judeo-Christian mythology does a great job exploring that kind of moral dimension. There's, I guess there's like the, there's the moral aspect to it. There's the economic aspect of it. There's the there are the the principles themselves, right? Like force equals mass times acceleration. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, it's an invisible formula, but it gives us so much power in the real world to like understand that formula of nature and to be able to harness nature. We can fly planes. We have the worldwide internet. We go to space. Um, it's just really interesting. There there's something there, um, and. I guess the the three books I've always recommended to like 
totally break your materialist worldview. I guess I would add the fourth would just be the Bible itself. But three non-Bible books are Human Action by Mises, uh, the book Leela by Robert Persig, and Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson. It just, it explores this whole mythological landscape that um, that's intrinsic to us. And maybe this might be a segue into something else I wanted to talk to you about. This idea that we are the animal that plays imaginary, right? We have an imagination and then we have an ability to communicate that imagination. That's what we're doing through language. And then through work and experimentation, we actually render our imagination into the world. Like we etch our imagination into the world. Like we're sitting in a studio right now. This whole thing started out as a blueprint in someone's mind or on some piece of paper at some point before the plans were set in motion and we started actually creating it, manufacturing it. And so I guess the punchline there would be that the human imagination is like the most powerful force in the sphere of human affairs. Given that reality, there seems to be this ongoing contention to control the narrative, if you will. And that's where I see heads of state and certain religious leaders kind of like filling that role. Like it's one thing to, for if in the instance of being a religious leader, like you're pointing people to the word. It's another thing when you have that power flowing through you and you bend it to your own private gain, you know? So there's, we are this animal that tells stories, I guess. And in that comes this competition to try and control the story. And from that competitive process, the most truthful, useful fictions emerge. They're the most useful. And I think that's another way to look at Christianity. Like it is one of the most truthful, useful fictions we've ever had because it's built on this reality. It's centered on this reality of agape, which is this, the Greeks had three types of love, right? It was, they had more actually, but I know of three. Eros, which is like consumptive love. Like I love to eat the steak or whatever. They had philia, which is reciprocal love, like the love of friendship or the love of a romantic partner. You want ongoing reciprocal engagement with that person. It's not like, hopefully you don't want to eat them. (laughs) Um, And then finally there's agape, which is the selfless love a parent has for their child, right? You don't, there's not even reciprocal engagement there really. When you bring home your newborn child, they're just inert more or less, but you love them beyond all imagination. And it seems like the, the Bible, a big theme in the Bible is that theme of agape. So you could, and I'm kind of speculating or theorizing here, but it just seems like, okay, so maybe that's a, another way to look at Christianity is like we have a useful fiction chronicling our moral development centered on the reality of agape. And what I mean by the reality of agape is that there, you, there's no living human adult that did not benefit from agape, right? Someone at some point was selfless enough to get them through their infancy such that they could become an adult. Like we all are alive today because of someone else's agape that they gave to us. And that seems to be like a real deep theme in Christianity. That's, that's also where we get the covenant theme throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah. If you read that word covenant, cut a covenant, that love Hebrew, uh, it's, it's, uh, 
It's chesed, which is where we get the word. If you ever read in the Bible, loving kindness, mm-hmm. it's steadfast, loyal love. It's actually even, it's, it's the closest thing. Agape is the Greek version of hesed, mm. which is basically love until the death. So for you to have, like, that is true religion. Yeah, like, I guess we were saying, even if, I don't, I don't believe it's a fiction. I don't believe it's myth. But from the concept of myths we tell ourselves and kind of stories collectively, I think anybody would want a religion that you see someone of superior strength and they don't act Darwinian. Mm-hmm. They act selflessly. And I think that's where actually we talked about people kind of throwing off the faith of their youth or maybe not believing. It's generally always related to someone was a jerk, you know, or, mm-hmm. or somebody did something that was not agape. I mean, we all do. I mean, that's the, mm-hmm. I, I, I like how you said most truthful or most true to reality. Mm-hmm. Like you need a worldview that accounts for agape, right? We, we all want that. We don't want, we want Will Smith to get redemption for the slap, but also to have some punishment or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't even know what I want, nor did I really care. I didn't watch the Oscars. I heard about it afterwards. But as a society, why do people care so much? There was a man standing up for his woman. You know, there, there was a beautiful couple. You know, there was a lot of themes that are in the scriptures, beauty, truth, loves uh, a couple trying to work through all the stuff that they've been through. Um, so people are like, well, you know, why'd you pick on that guy? Then when he stood up, then, well, oh, he, he was abusing his power and privilege, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, I think the media also gla- grabs on anything kind of salacial, mm-hmm. but I think we grab on intuitively. They're only, the media is only selling what we're buying, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think you said, read the Bible. That's a good point. A lot of people don't read the Bible. They read about the Bible or they read the King James Version, which is a beautiful piece of literature, but maybe you don't like the these and the thou. So read the NIV or the mm. uh, New King James or the NET Bible. Just read it. Like, just enjoy it. Like, as a personal relationship, you know, it is, it is one of the, texts that our civilization is based on, even if you have somebody who is not believing, because I have all these atheistic friends and they always go, well, why do you talk about that? I don't need that. See, I'm moral. And yeah, but their morality is defined by, they still do the things their mother did without the belief. Mm-hmm. But then if you say, oh, well, what would your mother be? Oh, she was a very devout <laughs> Catholic woman. She was a devout, whatever. Uh, whatever, but I, I found that interesting. We we do, it is the most true because it's the most real. And to bring it back to Romans, because I thought about this, mm. what was the cult of the empire? So so Romans 13, where we have that obey governing authorities text, it ends with, I gotta, I gotta I'll pull it up while you talk, mm. but it's something like live agape. Hmm. Like love one another, mm-hmm. but that was different from the cult of the empire. The cult of the empire was you have to sort of bow the knee to Caesar. You have power, privilege, honor, kind of like where we are, maybe a little bit more 
formal, mm-hmm. but it was money, sex, power, you know, Caligula, same thing like it is today. And state ruled over. So the imperial cult was non-agape. So we asked, I guess, well, what do we do to change where we're at? Live agape in the, be selfless. I had this one woman one time. I I wish I got her name or number. I was having a bad day. I really didn't need the money, but she like bought something for me. (laughs) You know, like the random acts of kindness. And I was going out to say, thank you. And she was like getting a fight with her boyfriend or husband or something. But I was going to say, uh, thank you. And, and it's, it's doing random acts of kindness. It's doing agape. Mm-hmm. It's helping someone who you really will gain nothing in return from. Mm-hmm. And that was distinct from the cult of the empire. And, and when the empires are in conflict, because they will be in conflict. We saw them in conflict with the, the Canadian truckers. And for all of the, you know, we were like, yay, go truckers. Like, what's ha- what happened in Canada? You know? And I would argue it's because they don't have a deep, rich public theology. Hmm. They don't have a view of God and scripture and text. So all they did was march in Ottawa. Now the state flexed its muscles. They all went home. Except one guy, what is his name? Arthur Pulaski. Have you heard about that guy? Mm-mm. He's a pastor. This is how scary this is. Because Canada... Canadians are nicer than Americans. They wouldn't do this. You ever meet people from Canada? They're always generally nice people. Mm. Premier Kenny of Alberta jailed a pastor for over 54 days, Arthur Pulaski, for merely being like a a speaker and kind of a a preacher in favor of the convoys. Mm. They said he was organizing it inciting hate speech, inciting, you know, craziness. So I think this is deeply practical because Canada has been sort of post-Christian years before we were. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a deep history of sort of being neutral. And I would argue no worldview is either statism rules or some type of Judeo-Christian ethic, even if it's not belief rules, Mm -hmm. because Judeo-Christian ethic means if you're a Buddhist, if you're, if you're a Muslim, we should treat them with love, respect, kindness, allow them to disagree. Most of these other, I mean, the, the cancel culture of Hollywood, for example, they don't have that. You commit a sin. We don't really know what they are at the time, but you know, Will Smith banished from the Oscars forever good actor will never win an Oscar again. Now maybe it was an act. Maybe it was something Mm. to gin up publicity because nobody's watching the Oscars anymore. (laughs) I I, I sort of think that, but if it isn't an act, uh, it tells us a lot about humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And also what you brought up, I don't know if you want to look this up. There's a, there's a definition by Kenneth Burke. Have you ever heard of Kenneth Burke? I don't think so. He is a, you know, he's like a Marxist thinker, actually, in the early 1920s. But he, he had the greatest definition of man I ever heard besides the Bible. Because in the Bible, the definition of man is that we are slightly less than God. Mm-hmm. 
We are God with a lowercase g. We have dominion, glory, honor, but then we're tarnished. We also have this selfishness mm -hmm. and self-interest. So a, a proper view of man is that we have the kind of the ring of power mm -hmm. that we have to fight, like that impulse to be self-seeking. What Burke said, this is interesting, he had a theory of man, and I'll just read it because it reminded me of something you were saying. Man is the symbol-using or like myth-making, mm -hmm. yep. symbol-making, symbol-misusing, so they will misuse myths, animal, inventor of the negative, or moralized by the negative. I Meaning, if you think about it, when your kids are born, the first word is no. Mm -hmm. They are defining life by what they are not. Separated from their own, his own natural condition by instruments of his or her own making, goaded by the spirit of hierarchy. We talked about that. Mm -hmm or moved by a sense of order. So this guy had no religious belief, which is interesting. I thought it was a great definition of man. Yeah, that's a good one. And rotten with perfection. <laughs> so even if somebody's not perfect, we're all kind of wanting that. So very interesting. No, that's super interesting definition. Um, yeah, it's all really confusing to me honestly because we it's like we have to and when i say fiction you're on to me right like it i mean symbol making right so even i referenced that mckenna quote earlier where he says all language is a lie right like we're just trying to create maps of the territory maps of meaning upon a reality that nobody really understands exactly it's, it's complex beyond imagination or comprehensibility like beyond but we're trying to chart our way through it right and we're using tools Hey, we're trying to account for mystery. Yes. In other words. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the most important tools we use is language. And with language, we construct imagined orders and mythologies. And it just seems to me like the success of Christianity, even, and I'm not trying to say the metaphysics are not true. I'm just saying, if you just look at it to this extent, you could say the success of Christianity is that it is centered on the truth of agape, something like that. Um, and it is also decentered when people are self-seeking mm -hmm. in their money, yeah. embracing fiat, embracing old fiat way. So much of what you're saying. I get is, concerned is though. I get concerned here when we try when we say be selfless, don't be self-seeking. That's antithetical to the spirit of capitalism, right? the The way I've framed this in my mind is like I want everyone to be as self-seeking as possible actually up to the limiting principle of other people's person and property. Basically that would mean you are pursuing your self-interest to your greatest ability without violating the property, the person and property of anyone else, which would mean you are being a very successful entrepreneur. Frankly, you're creating a lot of value in the world that benefits others. It is selfless, but it's done in pursuit of your own individual self-interest. And that's why I think that that property relationship is so important. The stronger we can make it, the harder we can make it to steal or violate property, the more wealth and abundance we can create through pursuing our own self-interest. It's, it's kind of a paradox because there's two ways to acquire wealth in the world, right? You can make something valuable or you can take something valuable from someone else. If we 
make taking as expensive or risky and difficult as possible, then people are left with only the making option. So then in pursuit of their individual self-interest, they're actually maximally improving the collective interest by making things of value, right? Being an entrepreneur. Um, and that's where I think, you know, something like Bitcoin is so important because it's just, it makes property very hard to steal or violate. So you're creating an incentive for people to be more productive and cooperative rather than um, confiscatory or violent. Yeah, if you think about capitalism rewards those self-interest, those who are the least selfish, mm -hmm. meaning they're not violating their own self-interest. And I don't think necessarily that that's what scripture teaches, but they're using their own self-interest in subservient to the needs of others. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like Amazon, why is it the biggest company in the world or one of them? It serves the most people mm -hmm. at the cheapest costs, mm -hmm. gets it there within, you know, I was telling my wife uh, when we were in Hawaii, people will use AliExpress. Did you use that in Hawaii? Because mm -hmm. apparently you get it quicker because it's in the middle of China and the U.S. I didn't know that. So basically you can go on AliExpress, good personal <laughs> Amazon finance. Amazon is slow in Hawaii. <laughs> good tip for personal finance from the financial quarterback here. AliExpress will sell the same crap that Amazon sells for like a tenth of the cost because huh. it's just going direct from China. My wife goes, well, I like that, but I really want it within two days. So you have a choice. You want the cheapest, go to Alibaba, one of the top 10 mm -hmm. biggest companies in the world, or you want it fastest and moderately inexpensive. Amazon also one of the top 10 companies in the world. And you buy it on your iPhone, which if you think about it to have People have said this, you know, your phone, a computer, a Walkman, a TV. Back in the day, it would probably cost like 10 grand yeah. to have what this has in the palm of our hands today. Yeah. In effort, Apple and Jobs, when he created it, were very selfless because they were thinking about what is, what is the user experience. Now, mm -hmm. they were selfish. They were self-motivated. It was mm -hmm. capitalistic. I'm not uh, decrying that. But I also think that's because we don't have the thought process of property. No, I, yeah. I think you're right in that. We don't even view, I, I remember, I went to public school. I, I don't remember having classes on property. Yeah, no. And inviolable rights. What did, what did Katanji, uh, the, the Katanji, what does Katanji Brown Jackson say? That she was questioned. Now there's debate. Was it due to Ted Cruz asking it or whatever? But it was a good question. Do you believe certain rights are inalienable. And she said, I do not know. I mean, this is someone who's going to probably be on the Supreme Court of our land. Hmm. Not knowing about inviolable rights. That's scary. But at yeah. least she's truthful because probably many of them believe what she believes but would say otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, even there, we're back in the territory of useful fictions, right? The yeah. idea of human rights. It's like, and this is a great point too, that to have a right, the flip side of that is it's someone's responsibility, right? If you have a human right to three hot meals a day, well, who's the chef? Who's gonna pay and prepare for those meals, right? Rights and responsibilities are two sides of the same coin. So when we get into this territory of inalienable human rights, I mean, my, I guess, 
anarcho-capitalist argument is the only human right is choice, right? You get to choose in any situation, like how you're going to respond ultimately. Um, but I don't think things like even something like, um, freedom of speech, right? We think that's an inalienable human right. It's like the idea inalienable meaning by the way that you can't trade it away. That's what it means. You can't alienate it from yourself. The only thing you can't alienate from yourself is the ability to choose and respond, right? Even if I say, Hey Josh, I'm going to give you all of my future responses for the rest of my life. Like I can still choose to not at any time. I haven't alienated that right for myself. So I think it's interesting though, because then people get, especially more of the social justice types are like, no, 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 we have a right to a home and a right to a meal and a right to you call me my pronouns or whatever in the world. But it's like, who, whose responsibility is all that? You can't just by fiat say, sorry, there's a little gnat on this mic. You can't just by fiat say these rights exist and that somehow that manifests or summons the satisfaction of the responsibility into reality. Well, inviolable may have been the question. So I'm not, mm. I may be using inalienable wrong, wrongly. But, but I do think the right of property, take the pronoun issue, it would make mm -hmm. it irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Someone wanted to be a they or a whatever you want to be. As long as each person in society is respecting the other's property, right. we can exist and coexist having many different belief set, sets. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think a lot of it stems on inviolable property. And that's, that's Ayn Rand, man. Like, and that's why I get the selfish thing too. She has this whole essay, the virtue of selfishness, but then she gets too far off the deep end where it's yeah. like, she's anti-Christian almost. And it's like, you can't, again, you can't throw out the foundation because like the reason she lived in a peaceful cooperative society with private property rights and all these things to be able to pen such a thoughtful essay is because of that Judeo-Christian substructure. And because others were selfless. Meaning there mm. was a time when somebody bled so that we could have this right, right to disagree. Right. Not, and I don't mean it in the, in the normal sense of, yeah. I, I just mean there were people, um, founding fathers or whatever, broke away from Great Britain because they didn't want to have the king telling them what to do. Yeah. And then we've traded that for more kings, but, you know, yeah, slightly better than the alternative. I want to ask you one one last question that's kind of a tangent, but not really. Just a different from a different book in the Bible, uh, John ten ten. Something I've thought about a lot, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it. So something like the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I think this is Jesus saying that, and then he says after that, "I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full." Something like that the business model of statism itself is quite literally killing, stealing, and destroying. Have you ever thought about statism through that lens or has any, to your knowledge, any Christian thinkers considered it that way? Because it just seems like, again, maybe it's a necessary evil for preserving property, but it seems like a pretty bad business and Christians don't talk about that very often to because my knowledge we were taught render to caesar the things that are caesar and render to god the things that are god's 
Like that was just, it's part of American evangelicalism, patriotism. You got to realize growing up in churches, you, you see the American flag mm. next to the cross. So what is that? I'm not, I'm not for that or against it, but there was this pseudo Christianity that was wed with this very weird view of the state mm. where even uh, Jeff Sessions, who I'd be a little more uh, conservative. So I mean, okay, I, I'd probably vote for him if he ran against somebody. Used that text, misused that text to claim that the Trump administration was doing something good you know, and he didn't even understand the text, but that has been such a text of of people to for state oppression. I think you're the only one I've ever heard say it on the beach. That was the first time I heard it. I've thought about that, meaning my whole last 20 years, ever since reading N.T. Wright, who's a great uh, theologian, most ardent defender of a historical resurrection, like that's what he's known for. Mm. Um actually proving the resurrection as a historical phenomenon mm. in texts, in scriptures, just like outside. And he's like heralded as, as one of the best scholars by atheists and Christians alike. And, and he's a uh, amazing scholar, one of the best scholars of the last hundred years. He had this whole essay on God and Caesar. Mm. And in it, he talks about the coin, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, we were taught the coin, right? Pay your taxes. That that's sort of render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Yes, okay, pay your taxes. The point that Jesus is making is almost a joke. Because he gets the coin and he says, if you know what his question is, do you know what the question is? Whose face is on the coin? Mm. Now, he was questioning his Jewish questioners. So he was a rabbi. They might have been other rabbis. They were questioning him, kind of casting shade on him for being, you know, uh, non-Orthodox as, as a Jewish young man. I mean, he might have been like 30 to 33. And his response was, whose image is on your coin? Meaning you're not supposed to have any graven image. And you have a graven image of God and of a false God at that. So he almost like throwing it away. Mm. I, I could see Jesus, uh, render to, you know, pay your taxes. I'm the king of the universe. Mm. You just got to realize, Jesus, we, we have these words, you know, Jesus Christ, Lord. Think of them kind of like trite cliches of, of religion. Back then, Jesus was his first name. His last name wasn't Christ or Lord. You know, that's kind of what we think. Mm. Jesus, you know, Lord meant curios which was a direct affront to the empire. Hmm. So when they would say Jesus is Lord, they were basically saying, Caesar, he has a little fiefdom. Our God's letting him just do his thing, but eventually we're going to have cosmic renewal and we're going to have liberation of the soul. And then what happened 400 years later, sort of uh, Christianity was able to thrive, become pretty much biggest religion on, on the globe at that time. So I, I think it's, it's that definition of Caesar and state and God that people are kind of misusing the text. Mm. But I love your triad of kill, steal, destroy, because that's exactly what statism does. And the Bible doesn't give a proof text for state oppression. 
Mm. That's a big thing that I think we have to, like even with the masks and vaccines, oh, well, let, you know, they're doing the best they can. Um, you know, let's respect the higher powers. No, you, you know, you're not supposed to willingly disrespect them, but pray for them. Mm. But I see a different theme from Romans. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, if you read Romans in context, it's actually a rebuke on Roman abuse of power because it actually says they're supposed to do good and for it's God's servant for your good, meaning it was like a rebuke. Mm-hmm. So they were supposed to act for the good of their citizens and they didn't. So, yeah, I just, I mean, I, I can't reconcile my mind how a state ever actually could sustainably act for the good of their citizens given their incentive structure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, we do, we talk about all these things and somehow maybe this is just my own limited viewpoint, but like it comes back to the necessity of something like Bitcoin to veto that, right? Like if you're being mistreated in your state, you should have an option to exit. Now, ultimately the power to say no is what makes it a mutual voluntary exchange. If you can't say no under threat of force, then it's involuntary. And today, like even in the US where we're presumably, you know, the free world or the, the, the strongest bastion of the free world, supposedly, if you have a net worth over $2 million and you're not satisfied with the governance services you're receiving in the US and you try to leave, you're gonna get hit with an exit tax. So you can't even say no effectively. Um, so yeah, anyway, I'll, I could leave it at that, but it just seems like we need to either evolve beyond statism or put it back in its limited necessary evil use case of preserving physical property, but one in which people have the veto power of Bitcoin to exit, um, should the state become oppressive? Well, sphere sovereignty might be the answer. Kuyperian's view, not sort of the modern view. Yeah. Kuiper's view. Josh, man, really enjoyed this conversation. Do you want to let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Well, they could go to just follow me. Um, we have YouTube, the financial quarterback. I'm on Spotify now, iHeartRadio. I have a website called the retirement reality check. I, I wrote an Amazon bestselling book and yeah, we got Spotify, YouTube, bestselling book. I got a new YouTube channel. So subscribe to that. You were on the show. That's right. Yeah. So. Awesome. All right, dude. Thank you so much. Thank you.